brought to you by RunToGold.com, the premier source for monetary science applied to geopolitical, international, and economic financial news and events. Welcome back to the 37th episode of the RunToGold.com podcast. I have with me Aaron Crown, who's the founder of uh, Mortgage Lender Implode, which is found at ml-implode.com. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Trace. How you doing? Doing pretty good here in sunny, sweltering, uh, but very dry Vegas. <laughs> yes, it is. a change for me. <laughs> it is. It's, uh, it's pretty warm out here. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about what your website does? Well, the website is basically Collapse Central. That's ml-implode.com, or you can go to mortgageimplode.com. And it has a, an emphasis and focus on the real estate market, uh, the U.S. real estate market, but tracks things connected to it and uh, wider economic ramifications towards to what happened uh, with the, um, the mortgage crash and credit crunch and all that. And uh, we, we keep track of the latest goings-on and the debate around what happened and why and what should be done. And the site consists of uh, a lot of different modalities. There's news syndication where we just post links to news. And you can get feeds of that. We have our own in-house bloggers, uh, such as Rolf Winkler at Option Armageddon, and we have forums, uh, the Implode Explode forums, actually, so that the whole network is called Implode Explode, or Implode-Explode.com, and we have forums common to all our websites, which includes the Bank Implodometer, and the Builder Implodometer, and the uh, hedge fund implodometer as well, which is really interesting because my tagline is kind of uh, the system doesn't collapse but evaporate, and they're all exploding and evaporating into nothing. And your site's also the central one uh, in the industry, right? You've been on uh, all types of national news, and you get all types of traffic with it, right? As far as the mortgage industry, uh, very early on in 2007, uh, the site was basically adopted by the industry because people in the industry needed to know what was happening to their whether they'd have a job the next day, whether they'd have, you know, whether brokers would have lenders to send their business to, you know, which lenders would still be around. So we became the, the leading source for change in the industry. And uh, as far as those who are left in the industry, we still, I think we still have uh, very much that same role. And there, there are many others, of course, who follow the site as a way to uh, just follow the latest with the, the collapse and uh, possibly aspects of renewal. And, and of course, you come uh, with a little bit of background in Austrian economics. Right. I, uh, I actually studied math and computer science, and that was my uh, profession. But at the, at the same time, I was, uh, since probably uh, really before the dot-com bubble crashed, I started studying economics and finance on my own. And after the bubble crash, I kind of... Um, I took a, a more uh, contrarian tack to try to really understand what happened, you know, how there, there could be such a great calamity and what was really going on. So I got into more and more Austrian uh, reading, you know, through uh, Lou Rockwell and, and all the other writers there and Financial Sense and those sorts of sites and Mises.org. And uh, it, it supplies a great education. Of course, I went off into all sorts of great books by uh, the various great Austrian writers. And I honestly, I don't see how anyone can understand the macro economy without understanding the nature of money and credit and their true role in, uh, in, in, in uh, facilitating economic activity either uh, or, or impeding it and the government's role in, in 
manipulating that. And, so. and once again, it's the Austrian school that has the, the vision of the future. They're the seers that are able to uh, see what's going to happen, see what caused it, why, why it happened. And as we were talking about uh, over drinks at the wind last night at the parasol with that big, there's a giant frog that came up out of the waterfall and started singing to us. It was pretty funny. But, but over, over dinner, we were talking about uh, the, uh, the effects of interest rates. And see, under the Austrian School of Economics, uh, we look at the business cycle and, and the role that interest rates play is in regulating production over time. And so what role have we seen uh, past, present, and, and also what you see going into the future with regards to commercial and residential real estate and uh, what the central banks have been doing uh, regarding interest rate policy? Well, it's very interesting uh, how that all works. And in the last uh, few decades, we saw more and more gearing um, of the economy into what we, uh, with some people such as Eric Jansen, have been calling the fire economy, finance, uh, insurance, and real estate. And um, as part and parcel of that, uh, Fed policy and uh, things like the GSEs and other organizations, government organizations or quasi-government, uh, became more and more geared towards making sure the spigots of credit would freely flow to those areas. So they became... Um, more and more governed by that intervention and uh, ultimately susceptible to, to being you know, over, overblown, uh, as we've seen. So obviously they can't really bring back that bonanza by lowering interest rates and channeling liquidity through the GSEs in the way they were. However, they've switched to new modes of forcing the money into the system and forcing credit into the system. So, the, for example, they've taken the GSEs into conservatorship, or they basically, there's probably not much hope they're ever going to spin them back off to be quote unquote private entities. So, but what they're doing uh, is, you know, not only keeping them alive and propping them up, but the Treasury and the Fed, through TARP money and quantitative easing, are actually forcing credit through the the, the husks of the GSEs that are left. They're buying not only uh, the GSE's own bonds, but buying MBS, mortgage-backed securities, uh, through them. And they're even, uh, they actually are just going to start, as we reported on our site last week, they're going to start re-securitizing old Fannie and Freddie debt that they would otherwise have to hold on their books that was going to be hopeless, and they're going to actually sell it, which means they're going to sell it to the Fed. So the Fed is going to start buying off the old debt. So... There's, a, there's really an air of desperation to keep uh, definitely the residential real estate market going. And, of course, if you just print money and give it to people, you can uh, get them what they want. You won't necessarily fix the, the sector. You know, I doubt they'll even be able to reverse the home price decline. They may just slow it down somewhat and drag out the misery. But uh, as far as commercial real estate, uh, what they've done there is interesting as well. That's basically driven by... Uh, what the major banks are doing, the major and uh, regional banks and lending consortia are uh, doing in terms of lending into uh, the commercial real estate sector. And um, the dynamics there are a bit different because it's uh, unlike residential where it's impossible for the banks to really look at millions and millions of mortgages and you know figure out uh, what loss they should take and, and whether they should even bother helping people. And so they really haven't. Uh, in, with commercial, you have a smaller number of entities that can just say, okay, we'll give you another six months, we'll give you another six months. And they can do that now because of all the, uh, the Fed liquidity facilities and TARP and all of that and the, 
uh, the, the retrenchment of fair value. So they basically the banks have been cut so much slack uh, that uh, they've been able to cut slack to the uh, commercial real estate sector. So that basically, I think that's been on life support essentially for for over a year, one to two years. It usually follows residential with about a one year lag. This time it has is taken longer, and I think it's because of the immensity of the bank bailouts. So what is what is all of this going to achieve? Well, it's you know slowing down the crash, but you know the cost of that is to uh, not only perpetuate the dysfunctional system, but increase dependence on the Fed and the, the central planners, and uh, drag out the misery. I mean, we're we're going <laughs> Japanese, you know, full fledged, uh, full bore, uh, in in contrast to the, the lecturing that we we gave the Japanese over the last decade. So it's pretty pathetic and and sad, but um, that's that's what they're going to achieve, I think. Well, exactly as we read in uh, America's Great Depression by Rothbard, the first thing that the government should do to intentionally exacerbate the Greater Depression is to prevent the liquidation, to prevent the credit contraction. And that's right. exactly what they're attempting to accomplish with uh, with these bailouts and the tarps right. and touts and other craps. It that, really is shameless for, the, for them to rail against the practices and how bad these banks are, but then berate the Financial Accounting Standards Board for wanting to move towards... <laughs> towards Mark to Mark to Market. Market. <laughs> and I should, it should clarify for, for the, uh, the readers that Mark to Market was utilized uh, extensively on the way up because they could mark into an, into an expanding bubble. They could mark their profits immediately uh, with very questionable values. And get their bonuses. And get their bonuses and then, uh, then abscond with those. Well, on the way down, they don't want to do it. And so that's <laughs> that's why this has become a big issue. So those who say that, that mark-to-market is the problem, we well, have to pick one, you know. <laughs> you, you either, either don't do it on the way up, and then you don't have to do it on the way down, uh, at the cost of being less transparent, which would be which is going to be bad. I mean, investors are going to figure out that there are problems with what banks are claiming unless you do this. Um, so that's that's the option. And uh, well, well, and when I was in accounting school, you know, accounting one hundred and one, the the chief purpose of the accounting statements is to provide comparable financial right. statements. And so when you don't have this mark to market and you don't have uh, the clarity and the transparency, you can't have right. comparable financial statements. And so then, uh, what can you believe? And right. it's a bit mysterious to me because I think that the, the um, the financial standards uh, organizations, uh, they, they had a pretty good system. It was abusable, but um, you could tell if, if hanky-panky was going on. They had the uh, level one, level two, level three uh, subdivisions, and uh, you kind of knew what was going on. It was If Goldman Sachs was putting lots of assets into level three, you could ask those questions, and, and the market could do what it, what it needed to do, which is to punish them for, for abusing that. However... Uh, just telling them that <laughs> that <laughs> you don't even have to do that basically is is just ludicrous. Uh, and and all of it, you know, eventually all of this trickles down to uh, the individual. And as we were walking through the the lobby of the Bellagio, we saw the the residential sales office for the condominiums. Remember that. And so, what do you see for for a city like Las Vegas, where we have all of these high-rise condominiums going up, and we have all this construction that's happening. What do you see uh, happening for for cities that were on the cusp of the bubble? Right. Well, the cities that were very much 
geared to the the bubble um, economics are, are in a serious world of hurt for some time because they're contracting. Their economies are contracting. They don't have a substantial, real, uh, productive economy. And so uh, people are going to have to leave. They're going to have to go elsewhere to lower-cost regions and do real production of something as soon as we figure out what that's going to be. <laughs> Americans are not very good at anything except well, bombing people. <laughs> you, know, you take people for a generation and tell them that flipping real estate is, <laughs> is, how you is make the way money. to use their talents. They, 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 you have to start over. But uh, So places like Las Vegas and the other uh, very extreme bubble regions, they're, uh, there's... These projects, I mean, they're not, these new condo projects are not going to, it's not going to go well. I mean, at best, they can cannibalize uh, more marginal projects. And some people maybe move from one to another to, to get better digs, but people are going to be leaving the city. People are going to be making less money. The professionals that will be paying these prices are going to be making dramatically less money. You know, even executives, their bonuses are going to be less. So that, that's, that's not good news for all that. On the other hand, I'll, I'll say that. In terms of uh, the the uh, ur- uh, rural urban exurban divide in this in the, this country in general, uh, there is a source for some optimism because uh, I think uh, the sprawl got way out of hand and it's going to retrench and we're going to see you know as commodity prices, energy prices go back. You know, I, I still very much think we're in a a secular uh, bull market uh, because of you know not only uh, growth around the world but uh, Chronic mal uh, underinvestment in capacity and energy and, and, and uh, mining and all of that. So, gas prices will be, come back up. Uh, people are going to realize that the exurbs are dead. I mean, <laughs> for the most part, some people will still be able to live there, especially you know if you work out of your home. But most people will need to move closer in. So, I think uh, the the more close in traditional suburbs and urban areas uh, across the country will see something of a renewal. And uh, you're already starting to see in some of the numbers. Uh, some of these housing starts numbers that they've been, they've trumped so much as green shoots. Well, that's not the exurban sprawl. That is multi-unit uh, buildings, uh, you know, in town. And we we have lots of those in Atlanta, for example. And if, yes, they're building too much, too fast. Of course, uh, a <laughs> like lot of usual. That, yeah, a lot of that went up on the on the, the credit uh, from a few years ago, and they're just finishing them off. And so they're going to languish for a while, I'm sure. But uh, I would rather own those units than owning uh, exurban tract homes that uh, may be bulldozed for a lot of them. So, uh, but it's hard to say what the time scale, you know, when that's going to play out. Uh, uh, so I wouldn't wouldn't really make investment recommendations in terms of buying uh, real estate in, for for any of these. Uh, you could do it maybe if you had uh, very deep pockets and. A long holding period of five to ten years, you might be able to make money on uh, urban real estate. Yeah, yeah, US. and and I likewise uh, have a similar uh, viewpoint that that the real estate market hasn't really bottomed yet. That right. we've got quite a few years to go. And looking at it in the big picture, uh, I've discussed a lot of this theory in my uh, new book, The Great Credit Contraction, where there's this liquidity pyramid and. The capital during a credit expansion moves up the pyramid into less safe and more risky uh, assets like these mortgage-backed securities or commercial mortgage-backed securities or auction rate securities. But then the psychology changes and capital begins seeking safer, more liquid assets. And so it moves out of those into the Dow or into uh, treasuries or eventually into gold and silver. 
And that's where I have a few charts in my book where I look at the historical uh, ratios of pricing different assets in terms of the monetary metals, which gets into really my specialty of monetary science. And when we look at the average American home, uh, in 1974, an average American home cost, give or take, about 30,000, 35,000 ounces of silver. In 1980, uh, it bottomed at about 800 ounces of silver. In 2005, because of how large this bubble got, an average American home costs about 45,000 ounces of silver. And currently, we're at about 12,000 ounces of silver for an average American home. So while we've lost... Uh, a, a very large percentage from 45,000 to 12,000. I personally, I don't see this market bottoming until you can pick up an average American home for between 500 and 1,000 ounces of silver. And, uh, and that's really what the role of these monetary metals is, is it's to be, to be able to perform these mental calculations of value or the pricing mechanism. Because we don't the, the illusion, the, this Federal Reserve note illusion, is an unreliable measuring stick. And so we can't adequately price anything with it because it has no definition. Right. For people who say that the precious metals can fluctuate, you know, it doesn't seem to correspond uh, to inflation precisely or anything else precisely. Well, look at the Federal Reserve note. I mean, <laughs> talk about unreliable. It's, it's, it's imaginary, completely imaginary. Complete illusion. Complete illusion. And uh, it's certainly hard to make the case that more people rather than fewer will be subscribing to that illusion over the coming very immediate future. So I, I endorse uh, looking at metrics like that, the gold and silver pricing of housing. I think we will go much more towards the other uh, historical extreme that you mentioned. Right, and, and, and so there's a lot of downside with it. Anyways, that's a, that'll wrap up our, our interview. We need to head out and go get a steak here in Las Vegas and uh, we had a we had a very interesting time. It's been a an interesting Memorial Day. I thought that Vegas would be a little bit busier than it is, uh, but I guess that's just a sign of the times. And thank you, Aaron, for uh, doing this interview with me. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks. Well, that ends the 37th episode of the RunToGold.com podcast. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the RunToGold.com podcast, the premier source for applied monetary science on the web.